Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio all of Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Our context is this, in the last chapter, Paul exhorted Titus to be a good teacher, to give a good word. Now, he's going to talk in chapter 3 of how to do good deeds, or to please do good deeds. Word and deed, those are kind of the themes of the book of Titus. I thought about it labeling it with another alternate title, Christians Living Among Outsiders, because Paul talks a lot about that too, as he talks about devoting the Cretans to good works. We start in verses 1 and 2, Titus 3. Remind them, remind the Cretan Christians, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Now, Paul had especially good reason to write this, according to John Gill, because the Jews on Crete were especially seditious and turbulent, and the Christians were not yet distinguished in the Roman mind and in the Roman government from the Jews. You see a Jew, you see a Christian. And so if the Jews are constantly causing civil turmoil with the Romans, as they were famous for doing, it finally led to the Jewish war, well, the Christians are going to get blamed for that. The scribes and Pharisees would often teach not to give tribute to Caesar, according to John Gill. Privately, they would do this. The scribes and Pharisees were teaching not to submit to any heathen yoke. And basically, the false Judaizers on Crete despised authority. And so Paul had to tell his Christians, don't get sucked in by that prevailing lawless culture. The Romans were all the time having to deal with Jewish insurrections. You remember in Acts 5.37, Gamaliel stood up in front of the Sanhedrin and said, Look, Judas of Galilee stood up, thought he was the Messiah. He came to nothing. And then in verse 37, uh, 36 in Acts 5, he mentions Thutis in the same way. He was a false Messiah. So these people are always rebelling against the Roman yoke. And so Paul has got to be very careful that his Christians are not associated with that kind of stuff. And not only the Jews on Cretan, but the Cretans themselves were very jealous of their civil privileges, privileges as they existed under the Roman Empire. Here's what Adam Clark says about the native Cretans. They were ready to run into a state of insurrection when they suspected any attempt on the part of their rulers to infringe their liberties. Suetus gives the following fragment. But the Cretans, fearing lest they should be punished, stirred up the populace, exhorting them that they should carefully preserve that liberty which they had received from their ancestors. Well, be submissive to rulers and authorities. And remember, these rulers and authorities, their civil authorities, were Romans, pagans. They didn't like Christians. I mean, we're talking about in the 60s sometime that this book was written, this letter was written to Titus, and already the Christians had been blamed for the big fire in Rome. It was about 64 AD, if my memory tells, reminds me correctly. So be submissive to those nasty Romans. To obey, to be ready for every good work. I felt like rebelling against my government here in America many times. I was too scared to in China. But I think, no, I'm not going to do that. What good is he going to do? I might get thrown in jail. The cause that I'm revolting for is not going to, people going to forget it next week. But the Church of Christ goes on forever. Oh, I know Paul could be accused of being a quietist, of not caring about social justice, of not caring about the inequities and injustices in society. Folks, there are always going to be inequities and justice in society, and there's always going to be secular people out there fighting them. And 99, according to Milton Friedman's law of unintended consequences, half the time the reforms they enact end up backfiring on the very people they were trying to help. So you factor all that in, 
You're going to do much good about bringing a happier society and a more just society by getting people to experience the love of Christ. Oh, but that's just so. But don't you evangelicals say that we're supposed to love the whole man, body, soul, and spirit, the whole man and his, well, yeah. I'm not saying it's wrong to go out there and try to fix something that's, if you can do it politically. I'm not against Christians getting involved in politics or the law or cultural things. I think we should. But if you think that there's going to be anything more than amelioration, dream on. We live, Human beings are a nasty lot of people, and we do not reform very easily. We do not change very easily. And any change that we got is wonderful, but it's hard won. Preach the gospel, folks. Sure, feed people while you're preaching the gospel. I got no problem with that. But don't go off and say, well, we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to feed people, but we're going to forget about the gospel because that's so otherworldly and heavenly that it doesn't do any earthly good. Nonsense. Paul tells the Cretans to slander no one. Well, especially don't slander rulers and authorities. That's easy to do. Paul elsewhere talking about rulers and authorities, governmental officials in Romans 13, 1 through 7 said this, everyone must submit to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and those that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you will have its approval. For government is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For government is God's servant and avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. In other words, don't submit to a government because you're scared you might get thrown in jail, but submit because you're offending God when you don't. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authorities of God's public services continually attending to those tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Now, just like when Paul tells wives to be submissive to their husbands or children to be submissive to their parents, he's assuming the normal course of affairs. He's not assuming a government like, say, Adolf Hitler's government that threatens to throw six million people, that does throw six million people. Jews and countless other Protestants into the gas ovens. No, you're not supposed to submit to that. But if you're driving down the road and you're speeding in Nazi Germany and a Nazi cop comes and says, you're speeding, but I'm going to give you a ticket. Well, hey, you got to submit to that because that's just the normal functions of government. So Paul's talking about the normal functions of government. He's not talking about when there's rogue cops or when there's an evil government that needs to be confronted. There's nothing wrong with rebelling against that. But I'll tell you one thing. When it's done, you better do it with a lot of forethought because you're opening up a witch's brew. But sometimes it has to be done. Like when Farrah Fawcett burned up her abusive husband. I said, yeah, go for it, girl. Burn him up. Oh, is that not Christian? Well, I don't know. Self-defense is self-defense not Christian. That woman was being tortured by her crazy husband. Anyway, Paul says, don't do any fighting. Avoid fighting. This recalls Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he said in Matthew 5:39, But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now remember, Jesus, just like Titus here, is talking about personal relations. He's not talking about the necessity of exercising authority, either by a policeman or by a military person, by a government official, or about an elder who's trying to contradict a false teacher. But if it's just personal stuff like, you know, so-and-so said something about me and I don't like what he said and I don't like what his doctrinal is. And, you know, don't, you know, some people just love to fight for the sake of fighting. And I like theology. And, of course, theology is often 
controversial, and but there's one thing that bugs me to death. It's when people just want to argue with you. You take a position, and they take the opposite position just because they enjoy the combat. Well, I don't enjoy the combat. I'm looking for truth. I'm not looking for a sparring partner. I'm not trying to flex my my intellectual muscles and train them by arguing with people. Now, Paul says avoid fighting, but he also told Titus to exercise strict authority. Titus 2.15, say these things and encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus 1.13, this testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. The bigger the issue, the closer to seduction the sharper the rebuke should be. The bigger the issue, the closer to seduction that the innocent church people were to being seduced, well, then the sharper the rebuke needs to be. Paul tells Timothy to be ready for every good work. And again, there's a, he talks about justification by faith in here, and, and not in this chapter, but in a previous chapter. And he also talks about works. So that's another theme, good works. So that's another theme in Titus that you see. You justify not by works, but do works. Another way I like to say it, works are not the root of your salvation, but by golly, they are the fruit of your salvation. So do good work. Paul is not ashamed to exhort for people to do good works. We tend to shy away from that because of the fear of being accused of legalism, but Paul wasn't afraid of it. He said, do good works. Be kind, always showing gentle gentleness to all people. Well, I mentioned that Paul liked to exhort to good works. There's three times in this chapter where Paul exhorts to to good works, right here in verse 1, he says, Be ready for every good work. And then in verse 8, Titus 3, he says, This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, to devote means you put your whole heart in it. It's not a concessive way of saying something. It's let's pursue these good works. Devote yourself to them. These are good and profitable for everyone. You do a neighbor or a Christian brother or sister a good turn. You pray for them and you help them out, whatever. That's a good thing to do. So let's do them. Titus 3.14, and our people must also learn to devote themselves to good works for cases of urgent need so that, so that they will not be unfruitful. Devote yourselves to good work. That's in verse 14. So twice in this chapter, chapter verse 8 and verse 14, Paul says the same thing about the Cretan Christians. They must devote themselves to good works. Now Paul says at the very end of verse 2, he says that the Cretans must be must show gentleness to all people. Now that's for ordinary matters. It's not all the time because Paul says in Titus 1.13, this testimony is true for this reason, rebuke them sharply. That's not gentle, folks. That's taking the bull by the horns and saying, look, you guys are about to be seduced by error. How about wake up? He rebukes them sharply, just like with a kid. You got a child, you don't have to discipline them if they act right, and sometimes they do. They're just like little perfect angels. They never do anything wrong, so you don't need to discipline them or say anything to them. But by golly, if they start giving you grief and start rebelling and doing things that are going to hurt them and are going to destroy their character, well, you're supposed to rebuke them sharply. So... We need to be judicious. There's lots of times where Paul says to be gentle. I, I just did a word study on it to prepare for a, teach, a short teaching in my church, and I was surprised how many times Paul said in his letters to be gentle. I think it was about seven times. So it's important. But that's in the ordinary course of affairs. That's not dealing with heretics. Titus 3.3, 3, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. 
Now, why would Paul go into such great length talking about the sad, sordid B.C., before Christ's lives of the Cretans? I think it's because he just finished telling them to be gentle with everyone because the tendency when you're dealing with people that are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by passions and pleasures and who are malicious and envious and hateful and detesting, the tendency when you deal with people like that is to be very, very harsh, saying, stop it, you idiot. Paul's saying, you need to be patient because you were just like they were when you were saved and somebody showed you love and kindness and gentleness and got you out of it by leading you to Christ. Our own past sins should lead us to be lenient towards those of others. Now, when I say lenient, I mean forgiving. I don't mean if somebody is in a situation where their sin is in an ongoing fashion hurting somebody, well, you got to stop it. But I'm talking about just when they're, they're nasty. Their characteristics are nasty because, and, they're, and they haven't had a chance to crucify all the, the deeds of their flesh yet. They're learning, in other words. Their sanctification journey has just started. Well, you've got to be patient with people. When Paul says, we, the for there is the reason that we need to be gentle is because, is for, or because we once were foolish, etc. And therefore we need to show leniency. The we that's there, he's referring to Christians before they were saved, according to Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Adam Clark makes the comment that Paul has no trouble including himself in with the nasty pagans. I mean, after all, he persecuted Christians to the death, so he wasn't denying his ugly past. Before Christ, Paul and his fellow Christians were disobedient. That means disobedient to God, disobedient to rules and authorities, or both. They were deceived. They could have been deceived by Satan. They could have been deceived by the lust of passions that were enslaving them, the lust of the flesh, the passions of the flesh that were enslaving them, or both, the devil and the flesh. How about the world? The world, the flesh, and the devil deceive people. They were enslaved by various passions and pleasures. The Bible never says that illicit passions weren't going to be fun or feel good because unfortunately they do. And that's how people get enslaved by them. People taking a toke of marijuana, shooting up some cocaine. Oh, I'm sure it's quite a rush. The end results are not so pleasant, especially in the case of cocaine. How about some sexy young woman comes up and starts telling you how wonderful you are. And how about let's go spend the night in her house. Oh, yeah, I, 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 that's not going to be unpleasant. It's going to be quite nice, I'm sure, until you get clapped the next week. So at first, illicit pleasures seem fun for a while, for a season. But the end is sin and death. The end is is uh, slavery, I should say. The end of the sin is slavery and death. And Paul says that before we were saved, we detested one another. Human beings do not like one another. I mean... Read history. They just don't in general. There's always a reason to be mad at somebody or angry at somebody. Well, folks, we're supposed to love everybody, including our enemies. Easier said than done, but it must be done. I saw a quote by Martin Luther King the other day. It was from his niece, Alveda King, who I like a lot. I read her stuff every now and then. And she said, her uncle said one time that he could have chosen to hate, but he decided to choose love instead because... He couldn't handle the hate. <laughs> hate was eating him up, apparently. And that's what it'll do. You hate somebody, it'll eat you right up. You better... I think about some people that have really done me wrong. Oh, God, stole from me, slandered me. And I even had a guy, a friend of mine, who's a prophet, come to me and said, I've got one word for you from God, forgiveness. Well, as it turns out, I'd already forgiven a whole bunch of stuff because everybody was doing me dirty. And the one thing that 
my friend thought that maybe the word referred to, I'd already forgiven that guy. He had stolen a bunch of money from me and my family. There was another person I had forgiven. I was having trouble forgiving, but I, even though I had trouble forgiving him, I wasn't going to, to, to test him. I mean, the guy that stole money from me went to federal prison for five years. That's pretty sad. He deserved, he actually deserved more than five years, in my opinion, but he, you know, he served his time, and I don't detest him. I'm not talking to him, but by golly, I'm not going to hate him. Because as Martin Luther King says, he said, he said he couldn't handle the hate. I can't handle the hate either. I'm not going to hate anybody. It's too easy to hate people, folks, and it's hard to love them. But we're supposed to. We have the 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 help of the Holy Spirit living in us to do that which is not naturally possible. We go to Titus 3, verses 4 through 5. But when the goodness of God and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, notice that Titus says, he mentions God's love for mankind when that love appeared. Of course, that's when Jesus appeared. We should never believe that because God sends people to hell that he doesn't love mankind. If I'm the governor of a state and my son commits murder, well, I'm going to have to see that justice is done, and he's going to have to sit in the chair, assuming my state still has capital punishment, which it should. And so, yeah, there goes my son, and I'm not happy about it, but I still love him. I'm grieved for his sin, and that's the way God looks at In my humble opinion, is the way God looks at sinful mankind. He, he, because of his justice, he has to punish, and every one of us deserves to go to hell for the horrible things that we've done and thought. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't love the people who refuse to come to him. Now, the but there at the beginning of the verse, at the beginning of the verse, is to show the contrast between detesting all men. Before we were saved, we detested one another, but... When the goodness of God and his love for mankind appeared, notice the contrast there. Detesting one another. We detest one another. That's how we deal with mankind. But God loves mankind. There's the there's the contrast. His love for mankind appeared when Jesus appeared before it was hidden from all eternity in the heart of God, as John Gill says. But when Christ came, it was no longer hidden. He saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done. So even though three times in this chapter, Paul exhorts Titus and the Cretans to good works, He's very careful to say those good works do not save us. He couldn't be more explicit. Verse 5, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, his grace. Works of righteousness, Gill says these are works done in accordance to a righteous law. That would probably be referring to the Mosaic law. You can obey the Ten Commandments all you want, but you're not going to get saved by doing that. Now at the end of verse 4, Paul says that we are saved through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Well, now, what does that mean, washing of regeneration? Well, it could literally refer to water baptism. John Gill denies that, but Adam Clark and James Foster and Brown say that's exactly what it is. Why does Gill deny it? He says, well, baptism is never expressed in the scriptures by the term washing. I don't know if he's right about that, but that's what he says. And it's obvious that water baptism is not the cause of our salvation. This would be salvation by a work of righteousness. We got baptized, we got saved, not through what Jesus did for us, but by what we did for him, getting baptized. And, of course, Paul denies that it's possible in the very same verse. He says he saved us not by works of righteousness. We're getting baptized as a work of righteousness, so then, therefore, we're not saved by baptism. I think Gil's got the better part of the argument there. However, let's go to the other side. Adam Clark says that the washing of regeneration. The washing is the visible sign of the cleansing, purifying influences of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul doesn't mean baptismal regeneration, but he means for baptism to be a symbol of that regeneration that occurs by faith through grace, by grace through faith. Here's what Clark says. Baptism changes nothing. The grace signified by it cleanses and purifies. Signified by it. See, the baptism's a symbol. They who think baptism to be regeneration neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. Therefore, they do greatly err. And then John Calvin says this, quoted by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, we must connect the sign and things signified. So as not to make the sign empty and ineffectual, and yet not for the sake of honoring the sign to detract from the Holy Spirit what is peculiarly his. So there you have the problem of sacramentalism. Is the sacrament effective? Does it convey grace or is it merely a symbol of the grace that is conveyed directly by the Holy Spirit? I take the latter view. I'm not a sacramentalist. I'm not a Catholic. But instead of saying it refers to baptism, the other option, as John Gill says, is just to say that it refers to the regeneration and purification that comes when the Holy Spirit regenerates you. It has nothing to do with baptism. It's just it's a metaphor to say that you're clean. The Holy Spirit makes you spiritually clean metaphorically through washing. And I think John Gill's got the better part of the argument here. In other words, he's saying getting saved will get you clean spiritually. And I think that's exactly what Paul means here. Through the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Renewal means, well, it's options as to what it could mean. It means it could mean regeneration. John Gill and I've study Bible say that. In other words, the old man before conversion becomes a new man after conversion. There's your renewal. Or it could mean sanctification. You are gradually being sanctified as you progressively move toward the perfect, which is the image of Christ. I don't know what it is. I think it could be both. You get justified, and then sanctification starts right there. And all of that's done by grace, by his mercy. We go to verse 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7, Titus 3. He poured out this spirit. This is the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. He poured out this spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. He poured out this what does that refer to? Well, it can refer to the Holy Spirit. And as a matter of fact, the Holman Christian Study Bible puts spirit in brackets. It's not in the Greek. So they suggest an answer for us by saying he poured out this spirit. And Jamin Fawcett and Brown agrees with that interpretation. It says this is the Holy Spirit. This would be referring to the previous verse, the last two words of the previous verse, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. God, and then verse 6, he poured out this spirit. That's the most obvious reference, the closest. Adam Clark, however, disagrees with Jameson Fawcett and Brown and says it's not referring to the spirit. Paul is not. He's referring to the water referred to by the washing in verse 5. The previous verse says, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, this, the washing, in verse 6 God has poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. I don't think so. I think it's the Holy Spirit. We'll go with that. So this Spirit has been poured out on us abundantly, more than you need, so that having been justified by His grace, that once more we're justified by grace, not by the works of righteousness that we might do. So see, Titus appeals to both aspects of salvation. The initial salvation, which is done by grace, and then after salvation, we do works of mercy. We do works. No works before, but plenty of works after salvation. This, of course, is a theme of the scriptures, a very important theme in Paul. For example, in Romans 3.24, they are justified freely by his grace 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And freely means without having to pay for it. So you are justified. You are declared righteous before God without having to pay for it. You are justified by his grace. He does it for you because he gives you you unmerited favor. Now notice that justified can have two sentences. I just used the word, and Paul is using the word here in its most usual sense, which is to declare righteous, to declare righteous before God legally. That's the sense that Paul uses here, as Adam Clark says, as I just said. Here's a quote from Clark. The term justification is to be taken here as implying the whole work of the grace of Christ on the heart, so that having been justified by his grace. Now, there's a second meaning of the word justify, which is to vindicate. For example, your son comes home with a 50 on his algebra test, and you say, son, vindicate yourself. No, you say, son, justify yourself. And what you mean is, you're not, you don't mean declare yourself legally righteous before God. You mean vindicate yourself, show that you're innocent. And because of those two different uses of the word justified in English, there's been a lot of confusion. For example, when James says we are justified by our works, he means we are vindicated by our works. We show that we are now innocent because of what Christ has done for us. Paul, of course, doesn't use the word that way normally, or maybe all the time, I don't know, I haven't checked, but he normally uses it to refer to being declared righteously before God. I don't know why the translators in James don't just go ahead and translate that word as vindicated. We are vindicated by our works. I don't know. But anyway, we don't need to get confused. So that having been justified by his grace, in verse 7, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. And heir is someone who inherits what do we inherit? Eternal life and a kingdom. Jefferson Boston Brown says eternal life. Well, that involves all that's in the kingdom of God. And it's ours, folks. We might be meek now. We might be despised now and persecuted and laughed at and marginalized and demonized. But by golly, if we hang on... The little bit of suffering, the light weight of affliction that we experience now will be nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that we will receive as we enter safely into that kingdom, as Paul put it. We're heirs. Paul said the same thing in Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed heirs, according to the promise. That's Abraham's promise. What what did Abraham get promised by God? Three things. Land, which is fulfilled spiritually in the kingdom. Offspring, seed, which is fulfilled first individually in Jesus. And then ultimately in all the other seed, all the other believers in Jesus. And blessings will be a blessing to the nations. Will be a blessing to the world. When people turn to Christ in the midst of this world in which there is no hope. But we have hope of eternal life, as Paul says in verse 7. Hope is a confident expectation of the future it is not a mere wish oh i hope i can get it no it's i have a confident expectation that i am going to have eternal life and what part of eternal allows for a temporary cessation of that life i believe in jesus i backslide oh i'm not saved anymore oh really i thought eternal meant forever and ever and ever with no gaps you're going to live, once you decide, once you get born again, you're going to live eternally. Now, you might backslide and you might do a bunch of lousy, stupid things for which Jesus will punish you severely. Because by golly, man, I'll tell you, I've seen Christians who have backslidden, especially these big celebrity preachers. Oh, my gosh. The shame, the horror of what they go through. So just because we have eternal life, there's no excuse to go out and sin because of that. Oh, I can sin that grace may abound to somebody... As Paul anticipated somebody telling to him, no, you, that's, not, that's not going to happen. You're going to suffer. You might not suffer hell after you die, but you're going to suffer hell on earth. This idea of hope, the hope of eternal life, let's look at three other scriptures that Paul 
uses to des- describe that hope, two of which are in Titus, verse chapters 1 and 2. Let's start with those. Titus 1, 2. In the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. The confident expectation of eternal life. Titus 2.13. While we wait for the blessed, that means happy, for the blessed hope, the, we wait for the happy, confident expectation of the future, the one who brings that. It's a noun form, so it's the blessed hope means the one who brings a happy, confident expectation of the future. He also, Paul also mentions hope in Romans 8.24. Now in this hope we were saved, yet hope that is not seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? That shows that hope is like faith, it's invisible. In fact, hope is a subset of faith. Faith is believing anything without having uh, physical evidence of it. But hope is having confidence in something you can't see, but it's something that comes in the future. Whereas faith is anything, could include things in the, either in the past or the present. Things that you can't see in the past or in the present. Titus 3.8, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. Ah, more devotion to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. What saying is trustworthy? John Gill says it's the, the whole of what Paul had just expressed. Well, what has he just expressed? God's poured out our spirit abundantly in verse 6. We're justified by his grace in verse 7. We are heirs with a hope of eternal life in verse 7. Chapter 5, we've been saved according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration, renewal by the Holy Spirit. In other words, all this stuff that he's been saying that the Cretans have through Christ, he's saying, oh, that's trustworthy. Trustworthy means it's going to happen, folks. I want you to insist on these things, Paul says, so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. The more you are secure in what God's going to do for you, the easier it is for you to go out and do good stuff for other people. And these are good and profitable for everyone. Sure, good works are great. We don't, because we are Protestants, we don't need to be ashamed of good works and think that when we talk about good works, we're a Catholic. Paul was not a Catholic, but he constantly exhorted people to do good works. And he says, I want you to insist on these things, all those things I just mentioned, mercy, grace, eternal life, heirs, do good works, do good works, do good works. I want you to insist on these things. That means not just mention them one time. Sometimes people need to be reminded. So when you insist on it, hey, you need to do it. You need to do it. I got a, one of my dear Chinese converts is needed to have a heart-to-heart conversation with a brother who offended her terribly. And I keep asking her, you talk to him yet? No. And I'm going to keep on insisting until she does it because it's what she needs to do. Notice that Paul says that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves. And again, devote means you put your whole heart in it and you be careful. You just you think about it. You don't be sloppy about it. You don't just do it instinctively. You don't put yourself on autopilot. Now, let me repeat, despite all this emphasis on good works, in verse 5, Paul says to Titus, He saved us not by works of righteousness. So he's not talking about works, righteousness, salvation. He's talking about doing works as a matter of your sanctification. So we have in verse 7 an emphasis on grace, but that does not derogate from good works. Grace and good works go together. They are not contradictory. What does verse 7 say? Titus 3, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. We're justified by his grace. He emphasizes there in verse 7, but then he says many times in verse 8, he says, devote yourself to good works. So verse 7, you have the root of your salvation, which is faith, grace through faith. And then in verse 8, you have good works, which are the consequences, the fruit of that faith. There is no contradiction. Now, Paul says in verse 8, I want you to insist on these things. And whenever he says these things, sometimes it's a little bit ambiguous. 
Jameson Fawcett Brown says it's verses 4 through 7 that he's insisting on, and that would be, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. I don't know. I would think that it would refer further back than verse 4, like in verse 3. He mentions all these evil things that we were, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and so forth, detesting one another, and he's, and he's of course, implying you, not, you ought not to do that. You need to be submissive to rulers. You need to obey. You need to be ready for every good work. You need to not slander anyone. You need to avoid fighting and be kind and be gentle. Those are the things I think that's in verses 1 and 2. Those are the things I think that Paul is insisting on in verse 8 when he says, I want you to insist on these things, that laundry list of good works that he gave in verse 1 and 2. I think that's what he's referring to. We go to verse 9, chapter 3. Paul continues, but avoid foolish debates genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Paul is big on that theme in the pastoral epistles in 2 Timothy 2.16. He says, But avoid irreverent, empty speech, for this will produce an even greater measure of godliness. Chapter 2, verse 23, 2 Timothy says, But reject foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they breed quarrels. When I was doing the audio on 2 Timothy, I lamented that I didn't have a particular example because I don't know the Talmud that well. But John Gill and Adam Clark here in Titus 3.9 have given me some examples which I recorded. They refer to some of the disputes between the schools of Hillel and Shammai. Hillel is the liberal pharisaical school and Shammai is the strict one. Now here's an example of the disputes they would argue about. Why have the Babylonians round heads? To which the rabbi Hillel answered, this is a difficult question, but I will tell the reason. Their heads are round because they have but little wit. <laughs> Babylonians have round heads because they're stupid. Is that true or is that false? Let's debate that. Here's another good question between the two schools, Hillel and Shemai. Why are the eyes of the Tarmudians so soft? Now, I don't know who the Tarmudians are. But the answer was because they inhabit a sandy country. Is that true or is that false? Here's another good question. Uh, debate issue. Why have the Africans broad feet? Because they inhabit a marshy country and they have to walk through the marsh. Is that true or false? Now here's a good dispute. That was from the rabbinic times. Here's one from the Middle Ages. Adam Clark has pulled up. The schoolmen would debate this question. Will there be defecation in paradise? Now I'm particularly interested in that debate because I actually debated that with somebody one time before I ever heard of <laughs> Before I even knew who the schoolmen were, and before I ever heard of Adam Clark, I was in my first couple of years, maybe I was in college, let's say, and there was this young Christian girl, I was single, and there was a young Christian girl in my hometown named Lona Ray. I won't give her last name in case she happens to be listening to this video, but Lona Ray was a ball of fire. I always liked these feisty type women, you know, kind of quasi-feminist, and she liked to argue for the sake of arguing. I mean, she, she wasn't going to let some lowly person like me tell her something and beat her in an argument you know that kind of that kind of girl she was so i took her out to the country club i mean we had silverware and crystal glasses and long flowing white tablecloths subdued lighting all over the place soft music in the background and i'm thinking boy this is a good date and by golly on that date we ended up arguing over will there be defecation in paradise i don't know how it happened it was probably me that brought it up. I will confess. I don't remember bringing it up, but I wouldn't be surprised if I did. And I don't remember which side of the issue that Lona Ray took. And I don't remember what issue I took. 
But we had a long discussion about that weighty problem. Now that, my friends, is what I would call a foolish debate. Talk about ruining a good date. I mean, I ruined it. Because my argument was, if I think I took the position that no, there will not be, because how can there be something holy come from the intestines, as the schoolmans would say? How is that holy? Well, the other argument is, well, Jesus ate with his glorified body. Remember, he cooked the fish by the Sea of Galilee. So if there's eating in paradise, don't you have to go to the bathroom after you eat? Well, folks, I don't know the answer to that weighty question. I'm hoping the answer is no, that you can just eat and it doesn't matter. We'll find out one day. But, folks, this is not the sort of argument you need to be getting into in church. Now, those are examples of foolish debates. But now there are some debates that are very necessary, and they're debates in scriptures. For example, the Jerusalem Council, which is around 50 A.D. in Acts 15. How do we deal with these Judaizers who are saying Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to get saved? Well, that went to the very heart of the gospel. It would have ruined the church if that debate had not taken place. How about the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D.? Without that rip-roaring debate, we would not have the doctrine of the Trinity. So some debates are not foolish and they're very necessary. Now, Paul in verse 9 says, avoid genealogies. What does that mean, avoid genealogies? Probably there were Jewish people trying to show that they were descended from godly ancestors. Now, I'm sensitive to this, too, because I'm from the South. I'm a white Southerner, and white Southerners love to talk about their aunts and their uncles and their grandpappies and their third cousins once removed, and they'll go on and on and on. And it was the phrase we used to hear was, good stock. Are you from good stock? Now, I remember one guy in my neighborhood would constantly talk like this, and it, it turned out to be the snootiest thing I ever heard of, you know. He would, his, his daughters were not going to marry any rednecks. I, that just ain't going to happen. And I think about, I had another friend one time who was constantly confronted with this, and he said, Dan, he said, if you go back and look at my genealogy, we have got criminals, robbers, thugs. Said, my grandfather himself, who was a great guy, I love the guy, but he came from a poor, white upbringing in the lower part of South Carolina that was full of nothing but alcoholics and deadbeats. He got out of it. He ended up being big in Democrat politics during his day. Before he had to get out, he became an alcoholic. Unfortunately, I wouldn't be surprised if it was because of his upbringing. But the point is, if you want to go back and look at your genealogies to see how great your ancestors are, come on now. That ain't going to work. I remember on my father's side, I am a direct descendant of Jim Bowie, or Jim Bowie, as he's supposed to be pronounced, according to my late grandmother. Well, Jim Bowie, of course, was made famous by Walt Disney. He was one of the guys at the Alamo who got killed. Well, that makes me something special, doesn't it? It's just stupid, is what I'm trying to say, to talk about your genealogy. Who cares? But boy, I tell you, people do. There's a, it's, you can get DNA testing now for because everybody wants to find out their roots. Remember that book, that uh, movie by by Alex Haley, Roots. Everybody wants to know the roots. I don't know. I've just never been interested. I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that, but if you end up arguing over it or spending all your time on it, don't do it. Avoid genealogy. Foolish. I guess you could say avoid foolish genealogies. Carry the adjective over from debates to genealogies. Avoid foolish debates. Avoid foolish genealogies. Avoid foolish quarrels. Disputes about the law. Oh, boy, could you argue over the law? I used to be a lawyer, and that's all we did. Day in and day out, argue about the law. They are unprofitable and worthless. Paul had told Titus the same thing. Well, he told Timothy the same thing about genealogies. In 1 Timothy 1.4, don't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan. 
Titus 1.14, Paul tells Titus that the Cretans may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of men, which is law, the oral traditions of the Pharisees. Don't pay attention to that stuff. 1 Timothy 1.7, they want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they're saying or what they're insisting on. So avoid these legal disputes, these genealogy disputes. Titus 3.10-11, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning knowing that such a person is perverted and sins, being self-condemned. Now, what does it mean to reject a divisive person? Well, what does it mean to reject him? It means have nothing to do with him, have no private conversation with him, eject him from the communion of the church, using the three steps of church discipline in Matthew 18. And I believe that's what it's referring to because he says reject him after a first and second warning. That would refer to the two steps in Matthew 18. You go to yourself... Go to the offending brother privately, first step. Second step, you bring two or three witnesses along with you. That's the second step. And then if he doesn't listen, then you tell it to the whole church, and you, and the whole church excommunicates him. Okay, so that's what you do to a divisive person. I'm going to talk about what a divisive person is in just a minute. But let's just talk about what now, what does the rejection entail? This is what it does not entail. Bodily harm, harming his character, harming his soul, harming his substance. Because remember... The purpose of church discipline is restoration, to bring him back to repentance. As was the guy in Corinth who was sleeping with his stepmother, he finally repented. As we find out in the second letter to the Corinthians, thank God for that. So it means reject him, but it doesn't necessarily mean reject him permanently. It means reject him until he repents and is restored. Now, who is this divisive person? Now, the King James translates that as heretic. The Holman Christian Study Bible translates it as a divisive person. Here's the KGV on this verse. A man that is a, an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. So the KGV word is coming to our language, into the English language, meaning a doctrinal deviant, but it actually means divisive. It doesn't mean deviant from sound doctrine. You can be divisive over a lot of things besides doctrine. You can become devices, divisive over the issue of will there be defecation in paradise. I don't care what position you take on that weighty subject. You're not going to be a heretic. You're not going to violate any of the three ecumenical creeds, but it's still divisive. So divisive is broader than heretic. All heretics in the doctrinal sense are schismatics, but not all schismatics are heretics, as John Gill says. In other words, you can be schismatic over whether you defecate in paradise or not, even though you're not a heretic and a perfectly orthodox. So that word, King James, terrible translation for modern ears. Maybe it was good back in, King, in Elizabethan times, but not now. It's a divisive person who insists on something stupid that's going to divide the body of Christ when it's not necessary. Now let's talk about this word heretic that King James uses. I think the word is used much too often in modern Christian parlance. I only use it for serious doctrinal deviants who violate the ecumenical creeds. I don't make it refer to people who have orthodox theological opinions who differ from me. For example, when the Reformed theologian John Gerstner, who was a bulldog, in print, he called dispensationalist heretics, and that quote is quoted all the time. Maybe he repented of it before he died. I don't know, but uh-uh. Dispensationalists are not heretics. The word is so loose, you can make it mean almost anything you want to, but it doesn't mean a heretic in the sense that the, the dispensationalists are not orthodox. The problem is now everybody's calling everybody a heretic, and the word, it's like everybody's calling everybody a racist now. Well, now pretty soon the word loses all meaning. Now you don't know what, who, you can't use a word to define a real racist when you see one. And same thing with heretic. You call everybody a heretic all the time, just like the John Birch's called everybody a communist back in the 60s, 1960s. 
Well, then pretty soon now you don't know who's a communist and who's not a communist. You can destroy words by overusing them and overapplying them, and I think that's what's happened to heretics here. I think the word ought to be used to refer to doctrinal deviance, but special kinds of doctrinal deviance. Those who deviate so far that they deviate from the three ecumenical creeds. If everybody would do that, I think we'd all be happy. We're not going to do it, so got to be careful with your words when you start calling people a heretic. Now, I've used the word to talk about heretical preterists. I use it all the time because they really are heretical. They violate the ecumenical creeds by saying the resurrection of the dead has already occurred. So I don't mind doing it with them, but I'm not going to do it with dispensationalists or with evangelical feminists. I've dumped on them pretty good through these series of audios, but hey, they're not heretics. They conform to the ecumenical creeds. Gender relations and the nature of men and women is not in those creeds, and so we can disagree on that and still be brothers and sisters and not call each other heretics. I never have called evangelical feminists heretics. I've called them extremely misguided. I can call them errorists. I can come up with another word, but I'm not going to call them a heretic. I've never seen where they call complementarians heretics either. How nice. We can all get along. A divisive person, according to Clark, is one that is obstinately attached to an opinion contrary to the peace and comfort of society and will neither submit to scripture nor reason. Yeah, you know those types. Now, in particular, who was Paul talking to when he ref- talking about when he referred to divisive people? Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett Brown say he was referring to those Judaizers, those legalists that he had to deal with in Crete, those Gnostic legalists. Now, in verse 10, I've already mentioned this, I'll mention it again, reject the divisive person after a first and second warning. Now, there's two options as to what that is. I took the option that is referring to the first two stages of Matthew 18 church discipline. John Gill agrees with me. But other people say it's just after a personal warning, private warnings before personally having to do with the schismatic. In other words, I'm warning you, son. I'm warning you, son. Okay, I reject you now, privately. No, I don't think so. I think Paul is talking about church stuff here. He's talking to Titus, an apostle. He's setting churches in order. He's not talking about personal piety. Although I will say this, it doesn't hurt to apply that to individuals if somebody is being divisive. Or maybe he's disrupting relationships between two people. It's not really affecting the whole church. It's just affecting you and maybe somebody else. Yeah, go talk to him first before you before you say, I'm not going to have anything more to do with you. In verse 11, Paul says, Knowing that such a person, in other words, you and I both know, Titus, that such a person is perverted and sins, being self-condemned. He condemns himself with his actions. He's perverted. He's a pervert. NIV study Bible says, Stubborn refusal to listen to correction reveals inner perversion arrogance. Yes, sir. Titus 3, verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Now, Nicopolis is on the, at least most people think, there's more than one Nicopolis, all right, but the one that most everybody thinks that this one refers to is the one on the western coast of the, well, it's the eastern shore of the Adriatic on the western coast of Greece, and Albania, Epirus, as they used to call it, going halfway up the coast there as you head up into former Yugoslavia, Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and all up in there. It's right there on the coast near the famous Battle of Actium where Octavius beat the mud out of Mark Antony, 31 AD, uh, B.C., excuse me. Now, when was Titus supposed to come to Nicopolis? I don't know. I have looked at the fourth missionary journey of Paul, as it is called, There are so many different speculations, starting with where did Paul write the letter to 
Titus? Did he write it from Colossae? Did he write it from Corinth? Did he write it from Nicopolis? Did he write it? Who knows? I don't know. He wrote it somewhere between his first house arrest imprisonment and his second dungeon imprisonment, according to most people. But when did he go to Spain? When did he go to England? When did he go to Crete? When did he go to Ephesus? When did he go to Macedonia on that fourth trip? Pick your choice. There's so many different opinions, I can't keep them straight. I don't think it really matters, actually. But what Paul is probably trying to do here, he's saying, look, I'm going to send somebody to you, like Artemis, who we don't know who that is, but Tychicus is well known. We're going to send, I'm going to send, let's say Tychicus, I'm going to send tickets to you, Titus. He'll look after things in Crete while you come to me in Nicopolis, and we'll keep right on evangelizing. Oh, I forgot, on the fourth journey, I forgot to mention perhaps Troas. Paul went to Troas on the fourth journey because he said he left his cloak with Carpus at Troas. But when and where and in what order, all that is up in the air. Now, Tychicus is Paul's trusted co-worker. He traveled with or for Paul on various occasions. For example, in Acts 24, at the end of the third journey, carrying the Jerusalem poor offering back, we have a bunch of fellow workers mentioned. Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy, and Tychicus. So he was on the ship going back to Rome. Ephesians 6, 21 through 22. Tychicus, our dearly beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. That's a prison epistle, and apparently he traveled from Rome to Ephesus to tell, I don't know when, I don't know if anybody knows, Colossians 4, 7 through 8. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, faithful servant, and fellow slave in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I've sent him to you for this very purpose. So Tychicus went not only to Ephesus, but to Colossae. 2 Timothy 4.12, I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. So you see, Tychicus was a faithful messenger for Paul. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that since Paul sent him twice from Rome to Asia Minor, it shows how, that Tychicus is well qualified to su succeed Titus. Tychicus goes to Crete, Titus goes to Nicopolis, and the work will go on. This Artemis guy, there's no mention of him anywhere else in the scriptures, that Artemis or either Artemis or Tychicus, Paul's going to send to Crete. No, we don't know who he is. There's some weak tradition that has him a leader at Lystra later on. Well, Gill and Jameson Fawcett Brown mentioned that doesn't mean anything to me. Now, I said Nicopolis was on the uh, eastern edge of the Adriatic Sea on the western shore of Epirus, ancient Epirus, present-day Albania. The word means city of victory. Now it could mean a it 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 could mean a city in Thrace by the river Nessus, as Gil points out. This would be the entrance to Macedonia. So in a, in another place, well, let's just put it this way: we don't know. We're not exactly sure where that river is. But most people, everybody I've ever looked at, says it's the Nicopolis in ancient Epirus, present-day Albania. Now, why was Paul sending workers to Titus? Well, to free him up so Titus could come to Paul. So, you know, Paul could have just said, well, Tychicus could come with me to Nicopolis, but he didn't do that. He wanted Titus to come with him especially. That shows that Titus was especially valued by Paul. What are some of the reasons that Titus might have come to Paul or why Paul wanted Titus to come to him? Paul perhaps wanted to know the state of the churches in Crete. Maybe he especially needed his assistance there in Nicopolis. And he, or maybe he wanted to meet him there so he could send him on somewhere else. But at any rate, we don't know that Paul actually made it there to meet Titus. We don't even know that Titus got there either. But that was the plan. Now notice Paul says in this verse 12 that he says, I have decided to spend the winter in Nicopolis. That shows he's free now. We don't know where the book was written, the letter of Titus was written, but he's, he's traveling. And so that is why scholars say that this 
has got to be between the first and second imprisonment at Rome because he's traveling and his travels don't fit in with his three missionary journeys in the book of Acts. And I think that evidence to me is pretty overwhelming. Titus 3.13, Paul continues, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. Now, why would Paul all of a sudden mention Zenos the lawyer and Apollos? It's because they probably carried the letter to Titus on Crete. Now, Zenos the lawyer is mentioned only here in the New Testament, according to the NIV Study Bible. Here's some options, according to the same Study Bible, as to what kind of lawyer he was. He could have been a Jewish lawyer, an expert in Mosaic law. He could have been a Gentile convert to Christ. If so, then he was a Roman lawyer. Now, tradition has it that he was one of the 70 disciples of Christ that was sent out in the Gospels. Another tradition says he's the leader at Diospolis, according to John Gill. Unfortunately, there were three Diospolises. There was one in Bithynia right to the east of Troy, Mysia, east of Mysia, east of Troy, uh, Lydia, Western Asia Minor, further down to the south, toward the coast, and there's one in Pontus, which is in the middle of the north on the southern shore of the Black Sea, so there were Diospolises everywhere. It means the city of Zeus. Well, that's Zenos the lawyer, all we know about him. Not too much. Now, Paulus is the other guy that came with, to Titus with the letter. He is a well-known co-worker of Paul, as the NIV Study Bible says. He was from Alexandria. We read about him in Acts 18:24 through 28. A Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian. Alexander, of course, is that famous city on the northern coast of Egypt. He was an eloquent man who was powerful in the use of the scriptures. That's not surprising. There was Greek oratory, a big famous library there in Alexander, a bunch of intellectuals running around. He was eloquent in the use of the scripture, and he arrived in Ephesus. Now, that was before Paul got there on the second journey. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught the things about Jesus accurately, although he knew only John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they were in Ephesus, they took him home and explained the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, over to Greece, to Corinth, the brothers wrote to the disciples urging them to welcome him. After he arrived, this is in Corinth, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. So, Apollos goes from Alexandria to Ephesus to Corinth. We read in Acts 19.1, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. In other words, Apollos had left Ephesus before Paul got there on the second journey. 1 Corinthians 1.12, this is another piece of evidence that Apollos was working in Corinth. What I'm saying is this, Paul says to the Corinthians, each of you says, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. So Apollos had the unfortunate pleasure of being named the head of a faction in the Corinthian church, because he was working there. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 6, For whenever someone says, I'm with Paul, and another, I'm with Apollos, are you not unspiritual pe people? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? They are servants through whom you believe, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So Apollos was teaching the Corinthians after Paul had started the Corinthian church, laid the foundation. 1 Corinthians 3, 22, Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, everything is yours. So he mentions Apollos again, because Apollos was prominent in Corinth. So that's what we know about Apollos. He's still around in between Paul's imprisonments, still working for the gospel. Went to see Titus on Crete. Now Paul says to help Apollos and Zenos the lawyer, apparently the main way of financing itinerant workers was helping them from point to point. I mean, they didn't need a lot of money. They didn't have health insurance and all that stuff, pensions and retirement plans. 
They just needed to have some food to get from one house to the next. And the Christians would help them from house to house with hospitality, with food, maybe with some money to go from place to place. We go to verse 14, chapter 3. And our people must also learn to devote themselves to good works. There he's talking again, good works. For good works for cases of urgent need so that they will not be unfruitful. Now, again, the special, you only got so much money and so much time. So what do you do? You focus on the cases of urgent need, the people who are really hurting, so that the Cretans, so that the Cretan Christians will not be unfruitful. I've already mentioned this a good bit. So here in verse 14, we have an exhortation to good works in verse 1. Also the same thing, remind them to submit the rules and authorities to obey, to be ready for every good work. Verse 8, Titus 3, I want, you, I want the Cretans to be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable. Now some people, Gill and Clark mentioned, say this good works that they're supposed to devote themselves to is hard work at a trade. Devote yourself to working hard at a trade. I do not believe that for a moment. Now, these people who devote themselves to good works, they'll do that and they will be fruitful. They will not be unfruitful or they will be fruitful. And from that, I deduce that giving material goods reaps spiritual rewards. I believe that to be true. Verse 15, Titus 3, all those who are with me send you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. Now, there's a subscription to this added on by scribes that's not part of the original text. Here's one example that Gill mentions. It was written to Titus, the first bishop of the church of the Cretans from Nicopolis of Macedonia. That subscription assumes that Paul wrote from Nicopolis. We don't know that's true. And we don't know that Titus is the first bishop of the church at Crete. Eusebius, Eusebius of Caesarea, the greater ancient church historian, said so. But it, as John Gill says, this is not likely to be very accurate. It's not likely to be accurate at all because Titus didn't stay on Crete long enough to be a bishop. He was there for a short period of time. There are lots of other similar subscriptions like that. They're all different. Adam Clark lists them all out. And he says not one of them has any authority. So I just mentioned that as a matter of historical interest. It's not in the text here. All those who are with me, that's all those who are journeying with Paul in his company, as Ellicott says. But we don't know where Paul was when he wrote this letter, as Ellicott says. They're not named who these traveling companions are. That's probably because they were all well known to Titus. And then Paul finishes with, finishes with his typical closings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with all of you. Amen to that. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with Titus 3 and finished with the book of Titus. In our next audio, we will take up the short book of Philemon. One chapter, probably take two audios to take care of that one chapter. I hope you stay tuned for that audio. And I hope you enjoyed this one.